Welcome to the 296th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome political scientist Prakash Kashwa to discuss COVID-19 in India. Just a reminder, Today is a special COVID calls at 8 a.m. Eastern time. You can usually catch COVID calls live on weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Just go to the COVID calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, June 23rd, 2021, there are 3,881,150 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. India right now as of today, is reporting 389,302 deaths from COVID-19. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that reading now. Headline is Rahul Vora, Indian actor and video blogger, dies at 35. This was written by Samir Yassir and published May 20th of this year in the New York Times. Rahul Vora began his acting career in the theater and later worked in low-budget films and television ads, but he was fascinated by the role technology played in shaping conversations about society, so he turned to video blogging. After he and Jyoti Tiwari married in December, she joined him in producing short, scripted videos in Hindi about issues like gender disparity, rising gas prices, and the difficulties of working from home during the pandemic. Several have received more than 1 million views, and Mr. Vora swiftly became one of India's most popular YouTube stars. In one video titled Story of a Woman, he asks for a cup of tea from his wife, who's played by an actress and is seen lost in thought after a long day of housework. I'm not a robot, she says. You only stay at home. What else do you do? Mr. Vora asks. She challenges him to do household chores for a day, telling him that then he would understand what she had meant. After accepting the challenge, he's soon seen struggling and tiring within hours. Even if I'm sick, I had to do this work every day, the wife says. In reverse, I ask for nothing, just a bit of respect and love. Mr. Vora died of complications of COVID-19 on May 9th at a hospital in New Delhi, Ms. Tawari said. He was 35. He had fallen ill in New Delhi's second wave of the pandemic, when much of the country's healthcare system was overwhelmed. He found himself making desperate calls to his wife from his hospital bed, telling her that he feared he would die. She called the hospital for help, but received little attention, she said. He was eventually moved to another hospital and died there. His videos struck a chord with young and middle-class Indians. There was something about him which touched the lives of people, a friend, Ankur Seth, said. He spread positivity around even in dark times. Rahul Vora was born into a middle-class family in New Delhi on January 27, 1986. His father, Suresh Vora, works in a manufacturing firm, and his mother, Bimla Vora, is a homemaker. 
Along with his wife and parents, he is survived by a sister, Niru Vora. Mr. Vora received a degree in commerce from Delhi University. A talented performer from a young age, he was then offered a place at the prestigious Asmita Theatre Group School in New Delhi. Two days after he died, Ms. Tawari, 29, a writer for YouTube videos, found on her husband's phone a video of him struggling to breathe and complaining about the poor quality of medical care at the hospital where he had initially been admitted. She posted it on Instagram with the hashtag justice for Vora. Justice for, sorry, let me read the hashtag one more time, justice for Rahul Vora. This is extremely valuable right now, he said in the video, referring to his oxygen mask. Without it, patients get giddy and suffer. In another post, the day before he died on his Facebook page, he wrote, I would have lived had I received better treatment. He tagged Prime Minister Narendra Modi, who's been severely criticized for his handling of the pandemic. My Rahul has left us. Everyone knows that, but no one knows how he left us, Ms. Tuari wrote on Instagram. I hope my husband will get justice. Okay, let's turn to our conversation for today. Let me introduce my guest, Prakash Kashwan is an associate professor of political science and the co-director of the research program on economic and social rights, Human Rights Institute at the University of Connecticut in Stores. He studies how social and political context shapes outcomes related to the environment, economic development, and social justice, with a specific focus on the role of political and economic inequalities. He's the author of the widely reviewed and acclaimed book, Democracy in the Woods, Environmental Conservation and Social Justice in India, Tanzania and Mexico. This appeared with Oxford University Press in 2017. He's the co-editor of the journal Environmental Politics. He currently is finalizing an edited volume on climate justice in India, which will be published with Cambridge University Press, and has another book manuscript on rooted radicalism, which focuses on climate justice in the global north and is under advanced contract with Oxford University Press. Given all of that writing, I'm glad that you have time to join me, Prakash Kachwan. Thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls. Thank you, Scott, for, for having me and, and more importantly, for, for organizing these conversations. As, as I mentioned in the green room, it's incredible what you've done. I mean, we, you know, some of us did several of these uh, Zoom sessions uh, last year when we got into the lockdown. And I think most of us got pretty exhausted pretty soon. So I think what you're doing is really, really commendable. Thanks for that. I appreciate that. It's very kind of you to say so. And and since you mentioned it, you know, what sustains it is that every day, every day I know I'm going to get to talk to an expert such as yourself. And so there's a lot of expertise, knowledge out there. And, um, you know, I guess what we try to do is bring it into conversation. So so let's do that. And And I'd like to Start the way I generally do, just find out where you're calling from today. Maybe tell me a little bit about the pandemic situation there, maybe the vaccination situation. Right. So um, I'm in Stores Mansfield area in, in Connecticut. Um, and um, my home is um, on the borders of two towns and two counties, interestingly. So the Tolland County um, has been doing uh, pretty well throughout the lockdown. And, um, you know, there was time when uh, there was a cluster of cases at, at UConn. Um, but other than that, you know, things have been managed pretty well. 
Across the border in Wyndham County, situation has been slightly uh, less satisfactory. There were many cases and for a long time, uh, the county was on a sort of high alert. Um, but for past uh, month or so, both of these counties um, have been declared as uh, moderate to low risk areas. So the positivity rate is you know, below is around 0.4, 0.5% point. Um, we have seen no deaths for past uh, three weeks or even for a month, I think. Uh, and so, yeah, things are getting back to normal. I already made my first research trip um, to Lawrence, uh, Massachusetts. Um, and so, you know, we are getting to sort of some kind of normalcy. But on the other hand, I also live this split life of, you know, constantly monitoring and researching the situation in India. And that, as you know, um, has been extremely uh, uh, dangerously worrisome in recent times. And now things are stabilizing a little bit, but even as of today, we had you know something like 1,300, 1,400 deaths. Uh, and so it's by, by no means we are out of danger there. Um, yeah, so I, I guess I have the struggle of living these two lives in a sense. It's such an important perspective that that you bring um, to be able to, I mean, it's extra stress for you, but to be able to see that, you know, winding down for now in one place, hopefully for good, and still that daily struggle in India. I, I wonder if you wouldn't mind, I've been asking this question of guests who are based in North America, um, since things have stabilized at least a little bit there where you're living, could you share maybe one of your strongest memories of the last 16 months when you think about this pandemic and this experience for you, a strong association or memory that you have? So, um, and if you don't mind, I'll share like two um, to again maintain the same sort of thread. Um, you know, um, the, the, some of the most disturbing scenes early on in, in the pandemic were, you know, related to, the entire sort of conspiracy theories around vaccination, um, you know, anti-masking movement and all of that. And we had a pretty um, intense discussion about the role of uh, responsibility versus sort of regulation at the central uh, level. Um, but at home um, recently, I, I think it was maybe a couple of months back, um, my, um, younger daughter suddenly got into this discussion of, um, you know, I, I couldn't make any friends this year. And especially she was watching uh, the older daughter who who has some friends from previous uh, classes and so forth. So she was able to meet online, but, um, you know, this grade two student who didn't have uh, many friends from before, she was missing being able to make new friends and we had a, you know, it gave us a pause uh, because, you know, generally we thought, you know, as a family, we did pretty well, you know, staying put and, you know, hunkered down and both sisters kind of took care of one another as friends and, and as siblings. And that was remarkable. But then we got this sudden realization that, you know, uh, there is this impact that we should be thinking about. But all of this is nothing compared to many, many, many disturbing um, incidents uh, that have happened in India. Um, and, you know, one of the big differences 
between India and the US is that, you know, people here complain a lot about Uncle Sam being on your neck and so forth. Um, and sometimes, you know, in a lighter mood, I tell my students that you have no idea what that feels like. You know, you have to go live in a country where the state is really strong. And, you know, in during the lockdown, we saw police literally beating people up uh, with these new, um, you know, uh, plastic and iron uh, clad uh, sort of, you know, canes. And so they were sort of freely, you know, waving canes at people who were trying to just escape such a bad situation. So that was bad. Um, recently on May 24th, uh, there was a report from the state of Uttar Pradesh that we will talk about quite a bit during this conversation, where a poor laborer, he got out of his home to get vegetables or something like that. Uh, and that was a, a, an apparent violation of the lockdown declared by the state. And so the police caught hold of him um, and it's a bit of a, you know, sort of a, um, alert here. Uh, it might be a bit distressing to hear, but I just want to share this story because it's so, it gives you an idea uh, of the extent to which things are very different in these two places. So this gentleman got out of his home, police caught hold of him, and they nailed his hand and literally it looks like they stuck nails through his one of his hands and one of his feet. And the, the media newspaper printed those close-up pictures of nails um, hammered through. And then when the media reports came out, the police had the audacity to claim that this guy was trying to defame police. So he nailed himself to defame us. Um, and, you know, I mean, that was the time when I really had to stop actually monitoring the news because it's just too much. And there are many, many incidents like that. Uh, you know, uh, pure, like uh, very crass, um, yeah, extremely disturbing and, and, and painful uh, violations of human rights of all sorts. But thank you for sharing that. And I know we'll talk more about the role of the state, but, you know, those associations are not ones that you lose lightly. Um, and it's, it is hard, and I'm glad you gave this sort of heads up ahead of time, but I know, you know, people need to, we need to be aware of these kinds of incidents right now. You know, the documentation of them is too easy to let to let slip. I right. I want to um, I want to start with a pretty general question, really. But you know, I mean, India is a country with advanced science and, and medicine, information, you know, technology across the board, and yet we have this late surge, which now puts the country among the four three worst. Um, terms of infection and death rates. And it's been pretty rough for a while now. This was not a short surge. I wonder if you could just set the landscape for us a little bit in trying to understand uh, what's happened. Right. So we have to understand this uh, complex issue at multiple levels. Um, I mean, there's no doubt that we... Uh, are a richly talented society in terms of, you know, science, technology, all kinds of skills, hardworking nurses, uh, you know, Indian nurses, especially, you know, um, Indian immigrants from uh, from South India, 
they are they they make some of the best nurses in all parts of the world and of course we have you know doctors and engineers and IT people right so there's all kinds of talent and extremely hard working people the problem that um prevents those talents from being effective in a local situation is again to the twofold one we have a bureaucratic system that does not reward talent and so you have you know if you have a senior most health official they may not be the senior most because they are the most talented they may have just you know um spent their years in the system and simply risen through the ranks because of the you know routine sort of pro forma promotions the second and i'll connect the first and the second one and second which i think is the more important and less talked about reason for our failures has to do with inequality um and a lack of sort of humanistic understanding in 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 parts of society and again i think it's best to sort of take an example to sort of um to to illustrate this point last year when the the first covid wave uh, started uh, ndtv um interviewed doctor and i i want to name names here dr raman ganga khedkar he's the head of epidemiology and communicable diseases at uh, india's indian council for medical research which is sort of equivalent of cdc here in the us now dr uh, ganga khedkar was asked by ndtv uh, reporters about you know this kind of worrisome reports that we are getting into a huge kind of wave of covid cases and uh, you know there were reports that The, the indian government wasn't even beginning to plan for testing and so i'm going to sort of paraphrase but also quote some of what dr ganga khedkar said he said you know um my problem is that how can i test um 1 billion people hmm. that was one of his first statements but then even more importantly what he said next was revealing and then he said once i test and give them a positive report what's the guarantee that they are going to self isolate then he went on and on. he said somebody comes to me and i record his name saying that i tested x y and z what is the guarantee that this person is telling me his right name what is the guarantee that he is going to do so he 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 says these bizarre arguments about why testing was not being done and and the and the journalist uh, who was uh, interviewing and and uh, the panel who was listening to this interview they didn't know how to react right but mm. th- these kinds of attitudes about poor people are extremely common at the highest echelons of bureaucracy which means that we don't trust reasons and we don't care for their well well-being in the same way that any human being should be cared for and and that's related to the 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 problem of social uh, religious inequality mm-hmm. you know about the most of the people uh, know about the caste system even though the way it functions is not very well understood but 
um, let's say that the normalization of inequality um, is such that you will find people genuinely believing that some human beings are less than human beings. They haven't, they haven't, you know, confronted the idea that every human being is born equal and should be treated as equal. That I believe is the fundamental problem that undermines our collective national uh, effort on anything. Um, I wonder if you might go a little bit further in talking about the problem of caste here, in in the sense that, you know, how should we think about that? problem in terms of of numbers if we were to think about it in terms of maybe income inequality and I, and I know that caste doesn't necessarily map perfectly onto income inequality as it would in the United States but still go a little bit further with that so we can think about you know the scale of that of that problem so there are there's there are two groups uh, two types of social groups that we should be thinking about when we, um, you know, to understand the, the extent of inequality in India, inequality and poverty. One is Adivasis, the indigenous people of India. Uh, they constitute about, you know, 8.5 uh, percentage of Indian population. That's still 110 million people. And uh, that's, you know, the second largest population of indigenous people anywhere in the world um, after China. And these people have been systematically kept poor um, in a sense because of the way the Indian state treated them as sort of almost as being sort of, and this is again a vocabulary that's often used in government documents and, and statements and so forth as sort of primitive backward people and that they live in forest areas and they should be, uh, you know, they should be kept, you know, there's this strange notion of protecting their culture, which almost means that they shouldn't be allowed to develop. And again, you know, this is very complicated, you know, and we can, we can talk for an hour on this. Particular sure, of course. Topic. Yeah. But, that, but that's one part of the population that is extremely poor in different parts of the country. And um, if, you know, some of these states, if you take this government data on malnutrition, hunger, uh, stunted childhood, maternal mortality rates, if we look at all of these data, we do worse than some of the so-called sub-Saharan African countries. But then, you know, we will often use sub-Saharan African countries as an example of poverty, uh, you know, not being ashamed of our own poverty at all. Uh, and, and then you have the, uh, the scheduled caste um, people or Dalits. Uh, these are, you know, so-called um, untouchables. And many people say former untouchables. I don't say former untouchables because practically surveys show that untouchability is still practiced and still believed in strongly by some of the so-called upper caste people. So this is another big group of um uh, poor people in India, and, and again, the, the rates of poverty are extremely high. And then there's a third um, sort of group. And remember, each of these groups has multiple, sure. literally dozens uh, of different castes and groups. And, and then each of those castes has literally several dozens of subcastes. 
So, you know, just as a side note, um, I am yet to read Catherine um, uh, Wilkinson's book on caste, but uh, caste and race um, are not comparable because of this infinite complexity of, of you know, multiple strands of inequality and, mm -hmm. and competition between subcaste groups and caste groups and so forth. So it's, it's right. So um, overall, um, you know, according to some estimates, anywhere between 45 to 60% of India's population lives below $2 a day. And um, so, so that's their particular um, condition of eco economic um, disadvantage and, uh, and, 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 and um, um, you know, uh, resource, um, lack of resources and so forth. But what adds to these problems is that, as I said previously, at every uh, step of the way in their life, these communities are discriminated against pretty openly. And, you know, doctors will refuse to treat them. You can't get into a hospital because you can't bribe someone. Mm -hmm. So, you know, every single thing that is sort of, you know, uh, a cakewalk for an upper middle class person in India is a struggle for a, for a poor person in India. So, um, you know, and, and the example that I cited about uh, Dr. Ganga Khedkar is, is an example of how poor people are literally uh, treated with this kind of mistrust and, and uh, almost as if uh, they don't have any uh, intelligence uh, or agency of their own. And it helped me understand then how it was that you know, it seemed like things were, uh, particularly given the population of the country, things seemed to be going along rather successfully. And then there was this shift and we see this intense surge. Is it that there were public health measures that were being widely applied and then there was a, a, a release of that and, and the state relaxed a bit, or there's some other features about sort of regionality that we need to understand because I think it's and I understand it's probably multiple factors all at the same time, but I'm still trying to get my mind around it. So, and along with the caste, I also uh, failed to mention the the religious uh, angle there. A large proportion of Muslims in India, and again, we are the second largest Muslim country in the world after Indonesia. Right. Um, and they are also extremely poor, a large number of them, uh, even though within each of these groups, there's there's also well-to-do people. Um, and the reason I thought of Muslims was because in the first wave of COVID last year, the state, and I when I say state, the formerly state institutions literally blamed it on a Muslim sect um, called Tablighi Jamaat, uh, which held their meeting in Delhi between 13th and 15th of March. And it was all orchestrated. It hasn't been written about enough. Um, we will hopefully see uh, more writings. But the, the state formally um, coined this term called Corona hotspots. And those Corona hotspots were systematically mapped onto Muslim areas. And so they quote unquote cracked down pretty hard on these areas. So that was one part of the story, which sort of created a particular kind of, uh, you know, othering and, and blaming Muslims for uh, the, the pandemic. That I would argue in the long run came back 
to haunt us in the second wave, which became serious because then, you know, at least in the beginning, people thought that this could only be spread by Muslims or, you know, poor people and things like that. Um, but in some states where, including my own home state of Rajasthan, when the first wave stuck, um, the state took very stringent measures to sort of literally do a police inform, uh, enforced lockdown. Mm -hmm. And and there were case studies of how the state, and that's why I said, if the state wants to be, it is extremely strong in India. They can literally lock down the whole country, right. um, you know, at the at the force of uh, baton in a sense. Um, so, so I think in the first wave, it was a combination of... Um, lockdowns and stringency and i think it didn't quite come uh, in the same way it, mm -hmm. it sort of you know it barely entered and then it subsided subsided uh, and and you know i think the exact sort of epidemiologic uh, uh, explanations for that um, have yet to come by but let's say we got lucky but even in the first wave, many of us, you know, and I think there were media reports that sort of warned us that, look, we shouldn't be taking it easy, right? We, we, are, we are a sitting duck. If it ever gets serious, we will get into mm. trouble. And I remember, you know, months on and on sort of, you know, highlighting this problem, you know, and, and sharing these kinds of concerns with uh, fellow uh, uh, social media uh, commentators and so forth. Um, but in the, in the second wave, India had elections in two or um, three important states, three important states. Mm. And again, I think to sort of properly understand it, we need to understand the context within which a particular kind of um, debate is created before every election, which creates the, the kind of aura of invincibility that goes along with the prime minister and his party. And so the short, long story cut short is that part of that aura is that, you know, we are brave, we are bold, we are, we take strong measures. And so even as the second wave was unfolding, the prime minister went around these three states um, you know, thumping his 56-inch chest. I mean, that's the uh, the dimension that he has uh, sort of flaunted uh, in, in public speeches. And, and he was literally saying, you know, in one of these state rallies, when India had already seen, you know, um, more than a thousand deaths, I think, around those days, Prime Minister went to this election rally and said, have you ever seen this big a rally and not a single mask to be uh, seen anywhere in that crowd? Then we have this massive, um, and, and when I say massive, you know, you have to imagine the India massive, right? Not the U.S. Right. massive. Right. So massive religious congregation called Kumbh Mela, which attracts at least 5 million people over a course of a week or so. And that... Um, uh, congregation was promoted by government. They took out newspaper advertisements of please go to the Kumbh. And there were reports that the chief minister of the state where it was being held, he opposed. And for opposing that thing, he was fired. He was sacked by the ruling party. And, and so again, you know, and as this is part of the aura that I mentioned that, you know, mm. 
infusing the entire public domain with these kinds of religious uh, pumped up narratives and you know narratives of boldness and, and invincibility. That actually led to, and now there is like systematic evidence to suggest that those were some of the more important reasons of why this exploded suddenly like that. Just and then I'm, just one more thing. Oh, go ahead, um, go ahead. They, they, during this, you know, five million strong congregation that I talked about, this is a Hindu festival, right? So 500 people gathered in the, before Indian government had announced any measures and, and before the Delhi police actually sort of, you know, declared the lockdown and 500 people gathered at that Muslim sect meeting, they were blamed for spreading Corona throughout the country. And here there were 5 million Hindus who were brought in literally by the state. And this was presented as, you know, and there were even narratives of how, because these are holy saints and holy people, Corona will not touch them. And then the state actually, um, you know, on the show of it, um, they, they arranged for COVID testing. And they said, we are doing large scale testing so that we can make sure that this is done in a proper manner. And then recently reports emerged that 100,000 fake COVID tests were issued during that particular congregation. More than 100,000 fake COVID tests were issued by private agencies and sort of certified by some of the government agencies during that. So this again goes to, you know, sort of show the, the extent of callousness that we have in the system. Who would issue a fake COVID test, right? What kind of social, political, you know, what kind of imagination of your own nation and its health you have to have in your mind to issue these kinds of fake COVID tests? And if there's a private agency involved, imagine they must have issued like 50,000. There were two private agencies, I understand. And so who, who will issue 50,000 fake COVID tests? What does it take to do something like that, right? And that gives you an idea of, you know, there are parts of society that are pretty sick, basically. Just want to remind folks that you're listening to COVID calls, and we're talking about COVID-19 situation in India today with Prakash Kashwan. Um, another simple question with a complicated answer, I'm sure, but I did want to get a sense of, of the Modi regime's popularity through this time. Has it been stable? Has he even further solidified power? I mean, people have been talking about, you know, the Trump effect and and what COVID did to Trump and what it's done for Bolsonaro. I know authoritarian regimes have had a kind of a mixed bag of reactions. I, but in general, what I would say from um, Brazil and the United States is it didn't necessarily hurt them, which is disturbing to me. But I wonder, I wonder what it looks like in India in that regard. So frankly speaking, we'll, let's say it remains to be seen in the sense that we're getting signals of both kinds. One, you know, you've seen social media videos of party functionaries 
who were sort of some of who thought they were pretty close to the prime minister, right? Not just to like any <laughs> normal uh, party worker, but they did, you know, they met the prime minister and, you know, clicked photos with them. He's pretty good with selfies and that kind of stuff. And they suffered pretty bad. Many of those people, uh, you know, came on to social media and their families, you saw them distraught families literally crying on, on, on social media and sort of expressing their outrage um, against the, this, this kind of systematic failure. But, you know, I think the whole world must be wondering what was the Indian leadership doing throughout this course? And I'll tell you what they were doing. And there's, and again, I mean, this much of what I'm, I'm saying seems pretty crazy, bizarre from any sort of mainstream, rational um, anticipation of what should be happening, right? But but please know that each of these things are well documented, and and you know we'll hopefully provide some of the resources. Um, so, Indian government has been designing and launching campaigns of various kinds to to explain things. So one of the things that they, they did was to sort of bring in a, a, an extensive discussion of systemic failure, right? And, and, and the bizarreness of this is that this was done and there are like WhatsApp university circulars, you know, <laughs> um, they were, you know, they'll systematically craft messages to displace blame in a sense, in a way so that it gets pretty close to sort of talking about the problem, but systematically taking the leader and the party out of the blame. So the the, the cleverness of these media narratives uh, was that it was a systemic failure. Even if the prime minister wanted to do something, he couldn't do anything. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, 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 and at the peak of the second wave, prime minister came onto the TV and he said, we had expanded the availability of uh, medical oxygen tenfold. Okay, so now COVID, uh, you know, you would imagine the COVID make, you know, makes the oxygen demand explode by a factor of maybe 500. Yeah. But he, he has the, the ability to sort of come on the national TV and make that 10 times sound as a big achievement. And this is all done through this multifaceted social media army. They literally have people on payroll, again, very, very well documented, who will go out and systematically tweet at everything, WhatsApp everything, Facebook everything. Um, and so they've, they've done an extensive, cleverly calibrated campaign to sort of take the blame out. And then, of course, you have on the top of all of this, you have the Trump effect of, you know, the the, right. sort of the demand side Trump effect, which is that there are followers who have suddenly found in Prime Minister Modi uh, an expression of their own sort of pent up uh, resentment against the elite. Uh, and, and these are all kinds of people, including some highly educated, highly well paid people who, who now has a sort of a license to sort of, you know, broadcast their bigoted views uh, openly. Mm -hmm. So all of this combined means that we can't tell if this will have any political fallout uh, in the long run.
I want to come back to one of the things we started with, and you you very um, generously described memories and associations of the pandemic, both in the United States, but also what you're worried about as you're following news in India. Um, and and so I wanted to talk about that in terms of the sort of Indian diaspora, which is vast and global. You know, people born in India or those of Indian descent in, in the United States, for example, and I'm not asking you to speak for all of them or even most of them, but I am curious if you could characterize some of the reactions, some of the ways people have taken action, even just trying to keep abreast of the situation in India, following news sources they can trust. What kind of networks do people rely upon? How do they get information and how do they, I guess I'm asking, how are people coping? And again, as as you already sort of hinted, it's a very complex story. Um, and I, I, this time, I want to start with the with the the dark side and then move on to the hopeful side. So hopefully, we end on a more sort of hopeful note. Um, so there's you know the whole phenomenon of of Trump Modi supporters. Um, it sort of extends uh, across international borders. So there's a strong constituency of, and there's a. Yeah, there's a strong constituency of Modi supporters here in the U.S. who've been, many of whose families have been affected actually, and um, and I, you know, I know personally of people whose families have been affected, with, but they continue to sort of defend uh, Modi um, on on every count, and and they think he's actually done a good job. Um, so there's that, but then I. You know, um, I also know of a large number of uh, Indians here in the U.S. who've been constantly trying to um, sort of do whatever they can. For example, and I wish I'm sorry. I wish I will put up a link that I wish I, I remembered the name. But uh, there's this doctor that I met via social media, and she's running a, a, a remote clinic uh, in parts of India. Uh, and the, she has a team, small team in two different states, um, and they were thinking of expanding a little bit. So there are those who are doing this kind of remote uh, clinical support. Uh, there are others who are, you know, sort of raising money, uh, raising social media campaigns and so forth. Um, there are also Americans who study uh, India uh, and, and who've been equally engaged um, and, and, you know, uh, scholars from other parts of the world. Um, and I, I guess, you know, I think um, personally speaking, all of us um, talk to our families pretty regularly um, via phone and WhatsApp and, and all of the social media kind of um, uh, methods. Um, and so we've been, you know, I mean, my family was affected. My my in-laws contracted the virus, and for two weeks it was a it was a tough situation. Thankfully, they didn't have to go to a hospital, um, and so you know it wasn't that bad. Um, and so I, I, you know, I think as I, I mentioned earlier, for those of us, particularly for those of us who are also trying to the, understand and and sort of engage with the broader uh, social political situation. Uh, it's been a bit of challenge, but there's also been very inspiring stories of journalists risking their lives because in many places they've been attacked. Um, uh, and young journalists and young students who've been arrested uh, for voicing their protest and, and dissenting, in, in some cases, um, 
people who were asking for help on social media in one bizarre case in the state of Uttar Pradesh that I mentioned earlier, a grandson um, posted on Twitter that his grandfather needed oxygen. And he was arrested for spreading rumor because the police came in and they said his father had some other illnesses. It was not COVID related problem and he didn't need oxygen. How, how dare you spread? So he was charged for creating social disharmony and rumor mongering. And so there were, there were these kinds of, but despite, and, and, you know, um, journalists like Rana Ayub, who writes for the Washington Post, she's been writing, um, talking, and then going, actually going to uh, neighborhoods and doing actual relief work. So there are these kinds of inspiring stories uh, that have sort of kept us going in essence. So I would be remiss if I didn't take advantage of this opportunity to talk about one of your core areas of expertise, which is environmental politics. And so I want to turn to that now um, and and ask you again, I guess, a kind of a general question, but you know, take it any direction you want to, which is just how you are understanding the connection um, between environmental change, climate change, biodiversity change, and zoonotic disease like COVID-19. I mean, this for a lot of people, this sort of generally fits into conversations around um, biodiversity loss or the Anthropocene or climate change. And that's all very general, but I know that you're quite good at mapping this very specifically um, and then helping us understand the politics of that. And I wonder if, if you wouldn't tell us what's on your mind in that regard. Sure. Um, and again, it's a, it's a, you know, very complex. So there's, there's a, there's part of the science of, uh, you know, the transfer of virus from the animals to human systems. Um, you know, that um, the, that transfer itself, that's not part of my expertise, but because we are talking about the interface between human systems and the environment or nature, that's exactly what I study. And so I think it's useful to talk about sort of, you know, evolution of interdisciplinary research that allows us to look at those linkages. I think the interdisciplinary 1.0 was where, you know, um, a, a historian or anthropologist or a political scientist would say that, look, we need to um, think about what happens in the environment and how it affects society, right? So that's the first order study of how these systems connect. Uh, and so, through those studies, what we know now is that it's the disturbance of the natural system through large-scale exploitation, through mining, logging, large developmental projects like dams, you, where we you know, decimate ecosystems and create all kinds of problems in, uh, in, 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 in the ecological system, which is a very intricately balanced system of interdependencies between vegetations, uh, animals, um, you know, other kinds of living, non-living beings. When you disturb that system through large-scale exploitation, you create all kinds of problems in the system. And that then sort of, you know, spills over into the human system. Now, particularly in the context of what are called as the, uh, the wet markets, 
right? There's been a lot of discussion of how this spread from this wet market, even though there's um, you know all kinds of ways of understanding it. And and as I was talking about it, I I kept saying large scale destruction of ec ecosystems because there were also quote unquote traditional interventions in the ecosystem through small scale farming such mm -hmm. you know such as the indigenous farming systems and they were actually um small scale human interventions has been good for the environment and again this will take us into three or four different arguments but you know small scale agriculture creates fire breaks which prevents large scale fires from developing sure. it contributes organic manure and other kinds of nutrients to the soil it creates you know quote unquote ecological niches which actually promote biodiversity. So mm. sometimes there's been a confusion between small scale human interventions versus large scale destructive human interventions. And that confusion is partly uh, part of the story of the interdisciplinary research 2.0, which says that one, it is nuanced, different kinds of interventions have different kinds of impacts. But then there's also probably 3.0 of this, which is that you know different actors in society can pick and choose these interpretations and create narratives which again blames certain groups for these kinds of problems. Mm -hmm. So in some cases, a poor understanding of connection between human uh, systems and natural systems means that poor people are blamed for environmental destruction. But we know pretty conclusively that it is the large scale logging, meat eating, industrial meat systems, all of those systems that are responsible uh, for, for the problem. Just to follow up on a, a sort of a method question, we can get wonky on this for a second since we're two researchers. I, I wanted to ask you about what do you think is needed or what's possible right now in terms of interdisciplinary environmental politics research, environmental history research? I mean, I'm seeing, you know, Again, you were careful earlier to talk about some really disturbing things, but also some rays of hope. I'm seeing enormous creativity right now in that space, maybe more than anywhere else in the historical profession. Um, and it has to do with not only just configuration, like let's get a whole bunch of people with different skill sets together and do an article, but actually people retraining themselves to use tools and methods that they have no business, that they didn't learn in graduate school, but they're like, hey, I need to understand um, ancient DNA technology, for example, one example. Right. So that is, um, so there I, I see two sort of countervailing trends. Um, and, and again, I, I, I want to be brief, um, but I think it's important to talk about both. And then if we have another, you know, couple of minutes, I want to come back to the sort of larger um, question of uh, state society links and so forth, which I think is an important lesson from the Indian story. But on the question of interdisciplinary research itself, you're right. I mean, you know, um, you and I are both part of different communities that are sort of, you know, going through this um, constant evolution of trying to figure out how best to debate some of these very complex questions, right? So we, I'm part of groups where there are um, ecologists, um, historians, uh, political scientists, environmental studies people, GIS people, remote sensing, right? So there are all of these different methods. Uh, and then my advisor, um, late Lynn Ostrom, she, uh, you know, she taught us this, this idea that research methods are supposed to be part of a toolkit. You are all in, in sort of a, you know, 
the place that I was trained at was literally called a workshop because we were supposed to craft uh, innovative theories to sort yeah. of, you know, answer some of these complex questions. So there's tremendous amount of innovativeness uh, and innovations going on in these interdisciplinary spaces. But on the other hand, we are also seeing, and especially in the area of forest restoration, wildlife conservation, biodiversity conservation, climate mitigation, I'm seeing a disturbing trend of actually sort of abstracting out from all of those innovative works and sort of creating global, crude global maps for promoting large scale global experiments on tree planting, for example. And so, you know, we, we recently published an article where we, we talked about how everybody loves to talk about tree planting, but that when it comes to environment society interface, there are no silver bullets. And so any anytime you hear a silver bullet, anytime you hear a global plan of some sorts, be very, very careful. Those can be very, very tricky situations. This is like the geoengineering, you know, discussion. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Right. I remember the first time I heard that and somebody described it. And I, my first thought was, wow, that's that's bold. That, that and then almost before my brain finished the first thought, the second thought was exactly what you said. It's like it doesn't scale like that. Historically. Right, right, right. We have a few minutes left. I know there's a, a few other things you wanted to, to get to, um, you know, particularly talking about kind of institutional failure in India. Maybe let's talk about that a little bit. Right. So one part of my um, research skills is to sort of, you know, connect the system, systemic issues with the behavioral issues. Right. And I, you know, I didn't get into the details of that, but, you know, um, maybe we can post one of the articles which shows how, you know, uh, power imbalances at the national, subnational level then affect uh, whatever we want to do collectively as a society. So, again, I want to use a concrete example from the, the whole COVID discussion, which will kind of illustrate the point. So, when we confronted the, the the oxygen crisis in this recent second wave, uh, Prime Minister and many of his supporters said, you know, this was unforeseen, this was unprecedented. Um, all of that is a large uh, sort of um, attempt at rewriting the recent history. So to give you an example, in August 2017, and this example will actually bring together all of the different elements that we've been talking about. In August 2017, um, in a town called uh, Gorakhpur in the state of Uttar Pradesh. And again, this state is coming up again and again. So, you know, worth reading it up a little more. 60 kids, children died over a period of, I think, two to three days, many of them because of lack of oxygen. This was August 2017. And the state under the present chief minister, um, you know, got into a firefighting mode after the whole world realized that 60 children had died in an Indian hospital within a span of three days. The state swooped down on the hospital and literally rewrote a, an inquiry report that was done to sort of understand why 60 kids had died in this hospital over a period of three times. And they blamed a Muslim doctor who was actually being helpful in the face of oxygen, um, you know, the hospital running out of oxygen, he was trying to arrange for oxygen sourced from private hospitals because he knew that there was oxygen in other parts. 
And so he was arrested for doing that. And he was kept in jail for three years. A doctor arrested for trying to bring oxygen to a hospital where 60 kids had died. Okay. He was released after three years and the judgment basically said that he was framed. Similarly, the, the, the Muslim sect issue that I talked about, this the um, uh, one of the high courts, I think the Delhi high court in August 2020, they came out with this decision which said that the Tablighi Jamaat was made uh, a scapegoat uh, in, in, in the first wave of Corona. So, and then in, in September of 2020, Indian Medical Association in the state of Maharashtra, Dr. Uh, Avinash Bondwe, he came on the public television and he said that it looks like medical oxygen supply is the most important problem that, that we have. This was in September, 2020, right? And so in, in, in April, May, we still didn't have any oxygen uh, plant set up. We didn't have the ventilators that the state ordered. The, the, the central government literally coerced all the government employees to contribute money to the PM Cares Fund. And billions were collected in PM Cares Fund, the Prime Minister Cares Fund, which was meant for COVID relief. And we have no accounting. I mean, there's been formal requests to sort of seek information about how that fund has been used. And that fund has been declared as being out of bounds for public disclosure of information because it is in national interest. Yeah. And so, you know, there's been a systematic criminal failure of the state to respond despite all the information, despite all the resources that we have, despite all the skills that we have. And I right now, I don't want to talk about the why part of it. Right. If this has been such a systematic large scale failure, there has to be a why question here. Right. And I have some answers because but we don't have proofs for that. But I think this is a story that for the global community, it needs to be investigated. It needs to be understood. And those who are responsible for the deaths of at least a million people. Right. The official death toll is three hundred ninety thousand something. Um, but you know we've had now we have the proper data related to the excess death and so the research that um journalists so you know if if people want to look up social media a journalist by the name of rukmani s and again we'll put up some of these links she's been part of you know counting the excess deaths and just five states out of 28 states in india only in five states they've estimated that there were excess unexplained death beyond the official numbers. And the total from those five states is 0.8 million. Hmm. So, so this, is, this is way, way more serious than even the New York Times and the Washington Post reports have suggested. Some estimates would suggest that we have lost, you know, anywhere between 1.5 million to 3 million people at the least. Uh, and so this is a massive humanitarian tragedy. You can't even begin to talk about these social and economic hardships that millions of poor people are going through right now uh, and then have endured throughout the, the, especially through the second wave. And the economic situation is, is, is really bad in terms of the, the, 
the actual economy of the majority of India's people. Again, you know, one last thing worth mentioning here is that mm. 85% of India's population, 85% of India's population is employed informally. So they don't get a bi-monthly check, right? And so imagine what happens when you have this scale of informal economy, this is literally undocumented. Um, and, and so, you know, the misery that we are talking about is simply unimaginable. And I just hope that, you know, some parts of humanity <laughs> will, will take note of it. Uh, us Indians will get together, we'll do something about it. We will get to the root of it. And hopefully there'll be some justice um, and, 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 you know, some homage to the, the heroic uh, work that the frontline health workers, the doctors, the journalists, the human rights uh, community um, have, have done uh, to sort of, you know, to help. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, probably everybody knows that almost all of the COVID relief work in India was done through social media on Twitter, Facebook and WhatsApp volunteer groups, literally carrying oxygen cylinders across cities and between cities. And so, you know, I think uh, this is a dramatically conflicted story of both heroic acts as well as some really serious criminal acts of, of cover up and, and callousness. Uh, and and, and there's, a, there's a lot to, to learn from the Indian tragedy that we have uh, witnessed recently. Powerful ideas today on COVID calls from my guest, Prakash Kashwan. And given the, what you've been saying for the last few minutes, um, and particularly, you know, the, the debate around numbers, which is often misleading as a way to even account for the broader impacts, it can't be counted just in terms of numbers of lives lost, but still and all. Just staggering what you're describing, and, and given that, I hope we can get a chance to have you back on before too long um, and talk a little bit a bit more because this is a situation where we need a lot more understanding, obviously in India as you've described, but outside of India as well. I, I just want to remind folks you've been listening to COVID calls, and you can usually catch COVID calls at 5:30 p.m. Eastern Time. Today was a special uh, COVID calls episode uh, at 8 a.m. Eastern Time. My guest was kind enough to join me at this time, and I want to thank. Prakash Kashwan for your time and expertise today. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. This is uh, this has been um, you know cathartic in some some ways, um, and but it's extremely important to get these stories out and and get this discussion going. Thank you again. Stay healthy, everyone. We will see you at five thirty p.m. today for another COVID calls episode. See you then. <laughs>